Hey, welcome to Sunday School. I'm glad you're here. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. You're listening to the Mills Sunday School Podcast. We are the College and 20-somethings ministry of New Life Church. We're a week into January, as all of you know. Um, For those of you who weren't here last week, you might not have come because you were still catching up on sleep from the new year, partying, hanging out. But um, yeah, we're a week into January, and... You know, I think all of us would agree that we as a culture these days are kind of immersed in these talks of New Year's resolutions and goal setting, and we're, we're kind of focused, commercials, cultural trends right now are all about these ideas of how do we grow ourselves, and, and how do we uh, improve our well-being, and what, what are some goals that we can put in place in order for us to grow And it's interesting because uh, recent studies have actually given us a percentage of people, Americans actually, who in the first week of January have continued to stick to their New Year's resolutions that they made just a week before. So we're going to start with a little interactive element, if that's okay this morning. So I have this percentage in my hand, but I want you guys to work as a table Uh, I want you to collaborate and talk through the percentage of people that you think have stuck with their New Year's resolutions a week into January, okay? And then after you're done with that, I want you to land on a percentage. There's a paper and a marker at each table. I want you guys to write that percentage on the uh, paper nice and big so I can see it. And then we're going to see what table and what group comes the closest to this percentage. Sound good? Make sense? Okay, so I'm going to give you guys just a minute to talk with your tables, land on that percentage, and then I'm going to tell you guys, ready, set, go. I need everybody to hold up their percentages nice and big, nice and big, each table. Okay, I'm seeing, I'm seeing 18, 20, 25, 725%. I don't know, there's 72.5, wow, technical. Okay, 60, 35, 32, 50 17.3, 13, wow, you guys, 14.8, all of your, like, points, what the heck? Uh, 4%, 30%, and 10%, 22%. Okay, so uh, to make this official, I need a drum roll, please, as, we're, as we get the percentage for the Americans who have kept their New Year's resolutions the weekend of January, it is 77%, 77%. So who came closest to that? Who, I think I saw an 80, 72.5, you guys were close. Did I see an 80? I guess not. All right, congrats, Aaron. You and your table are the winners. Brownie points, I guess. But uh, 77%, to me that seemed a little high. How many of you guys thought that's, that's a little high? Yeah, all the pessimists in the room, the realists are, are yeah. I I guess I'm a little more positive, and I have a a more positive outlook on humanity. I don't know if that's what it means, but I would have expected like 90, maybe 95% at best, because we're talking seven days where people stick with their New Year's resolutions. So I'm thinking, surely 90% of Americans stick with it, but it is in fact 77%. Um, And I'm I'm generally in the 23%. I don't know if you guys can relate, but I'm in the 23% of people who have already broken it and who have cheated already. Because I'm like the absolute worst at setting goals. I don't know. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody fess up? You're terrible at setting? Okay, yeah. I'm awful at setting goals. I mean, some of you, you you thrive on checklists and goal setting, and nothing energizes you more than checking something off a list and achieving a goal. But for me, that's just not me. I'm I'm sorry. I just, I, I, that does nothing for me. But, uh, but the reason why we shared all that, and my, my point in all this is this. 
that we as a culture still are kind of consumed with ideas of growing. And, and the 77% of Americans are still largely thinking, okay, how do I grow? And how do I develop? And if I stick to these goals that I've set in place, then that will equip me to better myself in 2016. And so I think a lot of us are still focused on growing and um, a lot of us are setting goals regarding uh, occupational stuff, like how to better our skill set and how to increase in our workplace and in our job and what can we do to land that big promotion at work this year. Some of us are focused on goals in academia. Uh, those of us who are taking classes, you're, you're setting goals on learning more and maybe you want straight A's this semester or uh, you want to learn this much. And still others of us, you know, maybe we, we just want to get in better shape. We're running on the treadmill, we're hitting the gym, a very common New Year's resolution. But, you know, across this room, all of us, our New Year's resolutions are going to vary a little bit. But I have a hunch and a sneaking suspicion that each of us would admit that beyond anything else, we want to grow in our relationship with God this year. And we want to, we want to walk closely with him. We want to hear his voice a little bit more. Um, we, want to, we want to grow in the knowledge of God and, and deepen our walk with him. And so because of that, for the next three weeks, we're going to be kicking off a mini-series here at the Mill, um, talking about the spiritual disciplines of Christ which I'm really excited about because as we're looking ahead to grow, what better way than to look at some of our Lord's disciplines here on earth and look at the things that he cultivated and he was strong in um, and look at those and see how those practically apply to our lives. And so for the next three weeks, we're not going to look at it in a holistic sense and we're not going to exhaustively look at all the spiritual disciplines that Jesus had because that could take weeks and weeks and weeks. But uh, we're just going to focus on three of his key disciplines in his life that he was able to cultivate and then we're going to look and see how those apply to us as we look to grow in the coming year. So for those of you who are just hungry to grow this year and want to develop and want to grow closer to God, then I encourage you to come these next three weeks as we study the disciplines of Christ. So we're going to uh, jump into our first discipline and talk about the first discipline of our Lord. But before we do that, let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to come before the Lord and to handle his word. So let's pray. Father, we recognize that you're in this place this morning. We recognize that you're a transcendent yet imminent God. Lord, that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. You're a big God who created everything our eyes can see, yet you choose to be close to us. And you're here and you're among us. And Jesus was the model that you came close to us and you walked upon the earth with us. And now your spirit's living in us, Lord. So by your Holy Spirit this morning, we ask that you would teach us your word that as we handle your scriptures, that the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be here and that um, whatever situations we're going through personally, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us where we're at this morning. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand your word as we handle it and teach it and learn it this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen, amen. Well, uh, when we look at the spiritual disciplines of Jesus... Um, we could talk about a lot of different things. We could talk about his uh, discipline to fast. I mean, the dude fasted 40 days. Like, man, I've never done a 40-day fast and probably never will. Um, he, he was strong in his love for others. He obviously had great discipline in sleeping habits. 
But, uh, but perhaps the, the most predictable and initial thing that sticks out to us is his prayer life. And how we see in the Gospels, Jesus constantly breaking away to pray, whether it's uh, early in the morning, whether it's late at night. We, we see this, this uh, consistent theme throughout the Gospels, even in a very face value study, that Jesus is a prayer. And he had and cultivated this discipline of prayer. And so, again, it's predictable, and we may expect that as we're going through and talking through a series on the spiritual disciplines of Jesus, that we would talk about it. But I would argue that it's one of the most, if not the most crucial disciplines in our Lord's life, because we see that everything he did was fueled through his prayer life. And his prayer life almost acted as the engine to which he did his ministry. And we see him going before the Father and consulting him in prayer before big decisions or big events happened. For instance, we see before he chooses the 12, his 12 disciples, he's praying to God the night before. Before the transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah show up and, and he's, he's transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John, we're seeing him pray right before And then, of course, we all know um, before his crucifixion, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and what does he do? He prays, and he comes before the Father. And so Jesus uh, cultivates this discipline of prayer throughout his life, and we're constantly seeing Jesus pray, so much so to where scholars, when they um, read the the scriptures, and when they study the Gospels especially, um, when they look at the book of Luke, they see this theme of the praying Christ— and how Jesus constantly is, is not only praying himself, but also teaching on prayer. He's going out of his way to teach his disciples and the multitudes about prayer and about coming before the Father in prayer. So as we, as we look at the Gospels and as we look at uh, the teachings and the prayer life of Jesus, Luke, the Gospel of Luke, gives us the greatest amount of emphasis and focus and attention to these ideas of prayer. And so if, if you want a good, rich study in the life in the prayer life of Jesus, then Luke is the, the place to go, Dr. Luke. Um, and it's interesting because as we look at the, the culture and the theology of prayer in the days of Jesus, they're vastly different, no surprise, than our modern theology of prayer. Because uh, the Jews in the time of Jesus uh, looked at prayer as an adequate substitution for animal sacrifices. And uh, they looked at, oh, was that mine? My bad. Looking at my email, a little peeping. There we go. Sorry about that, guys. Um, you guys just, just saw a little personal view into the life of Josh. Hey, though. Um, anyway, so the, the Jews um, had a very different look uh, and theology of prayer um, than we do today. And uh, j- the Jews saw prayer as an adequate um, substitution for animal sacrifices, in the days of Jesus. And they, they saw that prayer and good works both um, were a means of obtaining atonement that the law required. And this ideology largely came about through the exilic period of Israel. So late in the 6th century when the Babylonians come in in 586 BC and they, they ship the Israelites off to Babylon for over 70 years to live in exile, the Israelites weren't able to offer the sacrifices that the law demanded. Obviously, they didn't have the temple. They were far from Jerusalem. They, they couldn't go to the temple to pray. And so the, these, these rituals and these things and practices in which they obtained atonement for their sins were pretty much non-existent and inaccessible because they were in Babylon. 
So uh, it was during this time that this ideology came about of prayer and good works actually being a way of receiving atonement um, for their sins. And so we see um, in the days of Jesus that this, this idea of prayer is largely ritualistic, that the Jews operate and practice prayer um, not necessarily as Jesus did, as we'll look in a second, but, but as a means of engaging in ritual, of obtaining things from the Lord that the law required. And then Jesus comes along, and he flips that whole theology upside down because um, in his teachings on prayer, in his prayer life, we see that Jesus goes uh, to prayer and, and goes to the theology of prayer and changes it into this relational aspect. And he's not going to the Father out of ritual or to atone for sin or to obtain things from God, similar to what we can do, kind of use God as an ATM from time to time. Say, God, I need this, 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 and this. Will you give it to me? No, it's, it's not that. Jesus came to him out of relationship. And so we see there, there's this tension between the ritualistic way that the Jews prayed and this relational way that Jesus prayed. And I think it's something that we need to wrestle through today because I don't know if we can necessarily say that ritual in and of itself is bad or is wrong or is unhealthy in our, in our walk with God. I don't think we can say that because we engage in rituals all the time. The, the, the history of the church was largely built upon engaging in rituals, including the Lord's Prayer, I would say, is, is a ritual where we recite it word for word. I would say the Eucharist or communion is a ritual that we engage in. But if the ritual isn't built upon the foundation of a relationship with God, then we're missing it. Then we're, we're, we're living something that's face value and not that's deep and that's alive. So there's this tension that we have to wrestle with as believers to balance the ritual side of our prayer life, if any, with the relational aspect of prayer that Jesus taught. So with that, um, I have a discussion, the first discussion of the morning that I want us to discuss. And it's this, talking about this tension. What are some ways that our prayer lives can become ritualistic more than relational? So think specifically, think personally. What are some ways that our prayer lives can become ritualistic more than relational? Okay? So talk about it in your tables. We'll give you a, a couple minutes to chat it through. Ready, set, discuss. All right, so a good question is, why would we talk about that? Why would we discuss that? Why, out of any question, would we talk about the tension between engaging in ritual and engaging in relationship? Well, I just want us to talk about that because whatever we just discussed, whatever those points were, whatever those things were, where um, convert or, uh, ritual can become, can override, I guess, relationship, we need to watch out for those things. We need to make sure that those things don't become the foundation of our walk with the Lord, but that relationship is always at the core of what we do and how we pray. So, for instance, if, if we're praying out of guilt, guilt, that's, that's interesting, but that can actually be a ritual that we engage in. Like th this habit of going before the Lord in guilt, like oh, trying to gain acceptance and trying to gain favor and trying to make the Lord love you and, and bring him near, which, you know, you're, you're already accepted. You're already loved. You're already um, a, a daughter and a son of God. So if we come before the Lord more out of a relational aspect, as Jesus taught, then that um, is how Jesus modeled the way for us. So we referenced earlier um, that the book of Luke uh, gives a great amount of light and insight into this idea of 
prayer and the prayer life of Jesus and highlighting the relational aspect that Jesus taught. So I want us to go to our first passage of scripture this morning. And I want us to not read in entirety, but skim a passage in Luke and specifically Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. So if you've got your Bibles or your iPhone or Galaxy or an Apple wannabe phone, I don't know, you can pull that out. And, uh, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 11. And again, we're going to skim and we're going to pay attention to some of these key words that Jesus uses that frame this relational way that he desires us to pray and that he modeled the way that he prayed. So uh, Luke 11, 1 through 4, this is the Lord's Prayer. We, a lot of us know this. Uh, we probably could recite it word for word, but I want you to pay attention to verse 2. It says, our Father in heaven. Jesus kicks it off, punches you right in the face in the second word that it's about Father. We're praying to our Father. We're not praying to a God who's out there uh, like, a, like a deistic um, deity that, that he created the world, yet he's apart from it. But we're praying to a father who loves us. Hallowed be your name. You know, we, we know all that. Read it through. So, so then the rest of the prayer is about this prayer of provision, about meeting human need, about asking for our daily bread, asking for forgiveness, asking to overcome evil. So it's this prayer of meeting human need and praying to our father who only he can do. So then verses 5 through 8 is this parable about prayer. When a friend comes at midnight and we see this word friend, friend, friend show up. Another relational word. Verse 5, friend, lend me three loaves. Uh, Verse 6, for a friend of mine has come on this journey. Verse 8, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend. So again, this, this relational language. Friend, friend, friend. And finally, verses 9 through 13, we see the, the, uh, classic ask, seek, and knock passage, where again, Jesus used relational verbiage when he says in verse, let me find it, verse uh, 11, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Jump to verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those of you who ask. And I think you guys get the point, but Jesus frames his whole prayer life and frames and models the way for our prayer lives to be relational. And Jesus is always talking in these relational uh, verbiage and engaging in this relational dialogue. So we can continue to look at the teachings of the prayer life of Jesus, but, but I want to actually uh, spend some time and look at the way in which Jesus prayed, because I think we can almost learn more by looking at him doing um, as in regards to him preaching. So both are, both are valuable, but we're going to look at the way that Jesus prayed. So let's look at three passages here together. Uh, the next one we're going to look at is found in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. And this is a pretty lengthy passage, so I'll offer some context and then we'll jump in halfway through it. But as we look at Matthew chapter 14, at this point, John the Baptist has just fulfilled his mission and his calling here on earth. He has successfully acted as the forerunner of Jesus. He's um, paved the way for the Messiah. He's pointed all people to the Messiah. And he's fulfilled the prophecy that he would be one crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. So John has lived out his mission here on earth that the Father gave him. And after this, he confronts Herod the Tetrarch and 
calls him out on this uh, sinful practice that he's been living in. He calls him out on an immoral relationship that he has with um, his brother's wife. And so he calls him out on this saying, Herod, needless to say, is furious. He has him thrown in prison. And then after a series of events, many of us know the story, but John is beheaded in prison. So Herod murders him in cold blood in prison. And it's in this context that um, we pick it up in verse 12. So let's go Matthew 14, verse 12. Then his disciples came, that is John's disciples came, and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Let's stop right there because Jesus has just received the news that his cousin, John, his forerunner, and and really his friend has just been murdered. And he's grieving the loss, no doubt, of his cousin. Though Jesus was God in human flesh, he was man. And he dealt with emotions, and he dealt with grief, and he dealt with the feelings of loss, much like all of us do. And he's, he's no doubt wanting to get away and pull himself out of these, uh, these crowds and the, these, these throngs of people that are wanting to get healed and wanting to get taught. But Jesus needs a second. He needs a few days to just recalibrate and to pray to his God and, and grieve the loss of John the Baptist. So I would argue that that's the reason he's getting away. But then the, the multitudes hear where Jesus is and they follow him on foot. And all of a sudden, Jesus, this moment that he wants to be uh, separated and isolated so that he could just pray to his father, he finds himself once again in the middle of the multitudes asking, being asked to be healed and to be taught. And so then Jesus sets aside his will, sets aside his desires like he always does. And then we see the feeding, this great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 through verses 15 through 21. And so then after that, let's pick it up in verse 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. Finally. Jesus is alone. He has these these moments where he can finally pray to his father. And let's remember the context that just verses before John, his cousin, had been murdered. And so Jesus, no doubt, is still grieving this loss and still looking for time to get alone with his father and deal with his grief and deal with his sadness. And so here, I want to present to you the idea that Jesus came to his father in his vulnerability. In this first passage, we see Jesus, a painful Jesus, uh, a sad Jesus, maybe even a broken Jesus coming before his father and dealing with these emotions of, of grief and sorrow because his, his, uh, his cousin and his friend had just been murdered. And Jesus didn't shy away from, from being sad or coming to the Lord in vulnerability, but he comes to his father as he is and prays. Much like what we do at times when we're grieving the loss of a family member or dealing and coming to grips with a sickness, either in us, in our body, or in our friends, or in our family, or uh, on the verge of a broken relationship, dealing with the grief and the sadness that comes with that. Well, Jesus modeled the way and showed us that we can, in fact, come to the Father in our sadness. Let's look at a second passage of Scripture and see another way that Jesus modeled this for us. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 26, just a few pages later. 
And this is in verses 36 through 46. We all know the context here at face value as we look at this. Jesus is about to be crucified. He's simply hours away from dying the most brutal, the most painful, and the most embarrassing death imaginable to the people in the Roman world at that time. And he's looking death right in the face, and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane once again to pray and to get alone with his Father. So Matthew 26, verses 36 It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then we see for the next few verses him discussing this with his disciples and praying this prayer one more time. But here, no doubt we see a Jesus who Scripture explicitly says he's deeply distressed. Jesus himself says, I'm exceedingly sorrowful to the point of death. So here we see Jesus is ridden with nervousness and anxiety as he anticipates this death and he's looking ahead to it and he's looking not only death and embarrassment in the face but all of that pales in comparison to the separation that he's about to experience from the father because he who had no sin was about to be made sin for us and was about to become a curse and so Jesus is looking at this separation from the father and he's in some ways grieving but in other ways he's distressed, he's anxious, he's nervous, he's looking ahead to what's about to happen and out of this he comes before his father in prayer. And again he models the way that for those of us who are feeling anxious and distressed and sorrowful in some ways we can come before God in that. In some ways in our lives when we feel like we were wondering where the money's going to come from to pay rent, or we had car troubles, and how the heck am I going to pay for this? Where am I going to get a new car now? You know, various ways that the anxiety rises up in us. Jesus modeled that we can pray, and that we have a place, and we should come to the Father in our anxiety. Let's look at a third passage, and look at a third way that Jesus modeled this for us. And this is in Luke chapter 10, 17 through 21. And this is, uh, this is a different one. We see a really different uh, emotional state that Jesus is in right now. So verse 17, it says, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And in verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. And so here we see a Jesus, a joyful, a jolly Jesus, who is happy, who's excited, who those 70 just were sent out and came back with good reports. Hey, we, we cast out demons, we healed the sick, we raised the dead. The gospel was preached and out of this, this, this joyful prayer just rises up out of Jesus and he says, I thank you, Father, thank you. 
And so Jesus is welling up with joy and he, he, he prays kind of off the cuff and thanks the Lord for all these things that are happening and for the gospel that's being preached. It's so very different from the first two passages where Jesus was first vulnerable and in pain and in, in the second where he was anxious and nervous. But in this one, he's joyful. This one, he's pumped. He's like, yes, you guys have killed it. You've crushed it. You've brought the good news. You've healed people. You've done good works. And so Jesus is joyful here and this perhaps is the easiest one for us to relate with, where when things are going good in our lives and when, we're, when the bank account's full and when there's food on the shelves and when we're thriving in relationships and when we're at a great church such as New Life and engaging in community and growing, well then we have joy, we're happy. It can be easy to come to the Father and thank Him. And Jesus, no surprise, models the way here that even in joy— we're, we're uh, able to thank the Lord and come before him in prayer. So here's the big idea this morning in the, in the practical application and what this means for us. We look at Jesus and we see that Jesus was so disciplined in his prayer life that in any emotion and in any situation, he would go to the Father. And his emotional state wouldn't act as a buffer and wouldn't deter him from engaging in prayer with the Father and communicating and communing and having fellowship with his God, but he, he came to the Lord as he was. And so we see here that in, in Jesus's prayer life, there's this place of emotion that Jesus makes room for, that Jesus uh, very openly is in his emotional state with the Father. He doesn't shy away from it. He doesn't view emotion as a bad thing in prayer, but he comes as he is and prays to his Father. And so we can come before the Lord Jesus modeled this way. Jesus shows us that we can come before our God in the variety and expansiveness of our emotions. And we can come before the Lord in the variety of our situations because whatever we go through, we see Jesus has probably already gone through it. Jesus was poor. Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. So for those of us who are struggling with money, boom, there we go. Jesus had trouble with money. Jesus had to trust the Father for provision. Jesus was broken from time to time. He was, he was in anguish. He was sad. He was experiencing trial in his life, and he went to the Father. Jesus was joyful, and then and even in those situations, he went to the Father and expressed joy and prayed to the Father. And so the big idea and the big walk away here for us this morning is that in our, pr in our prayer lives, as we exercise this discipline of prayer, as we grow in relationship with the Lord, we can go before the Lord in the variety of our emotions and in the variety of our situations. And I know this is very, very easy to, oh yeah, agree with and understand with, but I would argue that it's very difficult in its application. Because I know for me personally anyway, some of you may be able to relate, but for me personally, I can, I can kind of shy away from the Lord in various emotional states that I'm in. If I'm broken or if I'm sad or if I'm, if I'm, if, if I'm heavy, I, I have a tendency to feel like, ah, I can't, I can't draw close. I gotta, I gotta stay, I gotta stay away because when I come before the Lord, I gotta have it all together, you know, and I gotta, I gotta be clean and neat and polished. I gotta have my hair done. And I gotta be wearing the suit and I gotta be looking good. And, you know, I, I gotta like clean myself up when I come to the Lord but Jesus models, no, heck no. Jesus came before the Lord in his brokenness. Jesus came before the Lord in his anxiety. Jesus came before the Lord in joy. And so when we go before our God and our good Father in heaven, we need not feel like we have it all together or let our emotions be the buffer between us and, and our Father, but let us embrace 
what we're feeling. We can be angry and come before God in prayer. We can be sorrowful and come before God in prayer. We can be mourning the loss of a, of a you know, relationship, whether a dating relationship or, or a family member or a friendship. We can, we can be sad and, and be, a little, be a little stressed and nervous about money and come before the Lord in that, and he promises that he'll wash our anxieties away. And of course, we can come before him in joy and thank him for all the things that he's done for us and thank him for a thriving life that he's given us. But the big thing here is that Jesus modeled the way and showed us, and not only taught us uh, through teachings, but he taught us and modeled it through us in his prayer life, that in our relationship with God, for it to be relational, we are to come before the Lord um, where we are with our emotions and in our situations. And I would argue that even the place of emotion that Jesus had in, in his prayer life validates the teachings of uh, relationship, right? Because you're never going to have a relationship in a robotic manner and, hey, how was your day? Good. How, uh, what'd you do? Nothing. You know, like, like a true relationship is thriving and it's growing and there's emotion and there's vulnerability. So Jesus shows us that uh, when we're to come to our Father, we're not to shy away from the places of emotion, but we're to press in and to come before our Father regardless of how we're feeling, regardless of what our situation holds. And to exercise this discipline, we can come before the Lord in the variety of our situations. And so we have this tendency as human beings to, to feel like we got to be clean and to feel like we got to be all put together and, and, and feel good and look good and be in a good place for God to, to really accept us. And I know that it's easy to think right now, well, no, God's going to accept me. But when you're in the heat of the emotion and when you're really feeling it and when you're really feeling discouraged and when we're really feeling anxious, it's tough. I, I think it's tough to come before God and just be vulnerable and push through and say, you know what? God, here I am. Here I am in my anxiety. Here I am in my weakness. Here I am in my fear. I come before you, not feeling like I have to have it all together. So with that being said, I want to lead us into our second and final discussion of the morning. And it's this. Why do you think we can tend to avoid going to God in our varying emotions and situations? Why do you think? Why do you think we have a tendency? Why do you think humans and people have a tendency to avoid going to God and keeping him away in the varying emotions and situations of our lives? Okay? Ready, set, discuss. All right. Well, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but, but I just, I hopped into a table and that was a pretty meaty discussion. Would you guys agree? Like, I felt like that was a really rich, vulnerable, like just being real discussion. Um, and, and what our table talked about was the, the idea of guilt, how that was a common denominator as each of us were sharing, how we can feel so guilty coming to God because we feel like, ah, I, you know, Drew said at our table, I should have it all together. I, I should be able to do these things. I, I should do, be this. I should be that. And I think that's a common feeling for all of us. And, and the reason why I wanted us to wrestle this through is just because Jesus modeled the way and showed us that, man, we don't. I mean, yeah, Jesus had it all together, obviously. But uh, we don't have to feel like we have to be in this picture-perfect, joyful, emotional place in order for God to accept us. But really, the cool thing about Jesus was he was confident in who he was. At the very core of his prayer life and his, his discipline in prayer, he recognized anew, I am accepted. I am loved by the Father. 
I know that, that the Father loves me. And so because there was that core conviction, there was no guilt, there was no shame, there was no worry in Jesus' prayer life. But Jesus instead engaged uh, willingly and freely with the Father in his discipline of prayer. So as we wrap up this morning, I want us to read one scripture out loud together. It's a scripture many of us um, will be familiar with, but I, I want us to, to say this out loud, but also say it as a prayer. Like, Lord, allow me to, and it's going to be 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18. So let's all say this together. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Christ modeled the way um, both in his regularity of prayer, how often he did it, his frequency, but also the way in which he prayed, going to God before, or going to his father in his emotions and in the situations and not shying away from the place that he was at, but, but uh, willingly and freely pressed into the father. So this morning, this week, and in the coming years, we're looking to grow. Let us be people who press into God. Let's be people who go to our father regularly in prayer as Jesus did, but also not shy away from where we're at. Not let our situations and our emotions um, separate us from growing in our prayer lives and growing in relationship with our father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and thank the Lord. Father, you're so good. You're so awesome. You're so holy and you're wonderful. And we thank you that we have an opportunity to, to take the word and to study it and to memorize it and to get it in us, Lord. I thank you that you sent us Jesus to model the way for us in our prayer lives. So God, as we grow in the spiritual discipline of prayer this year, and as we look to increase and deepen our walk with you, we ask that you would uh, grow us in this area. Would you help us to come before you guilt-free, shame-free, condemnation-free, and come to you as a son, and come to you as a daughter who's already accepted, Lord, and who already has your approval. Would you help us to go to you frequently, regularly, and regardless of what our situation and emotions may be. We love you. We thank you. I thank you for this people. Would you bless them and send them out in safety, being light and witnesses to your glory in this broken world, Father. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. We hope you've been spiritually encouraged by listening to this podcast. More podcasts and information about the college and 20-somethings ministry at New Life Church in Colorado Springs can be found at newlifechurch.org forward slash Sunday School.